Welcome to part two of our mediation special of Unlocking Conflict. Last episode we talked about the power of mediation. This week includes advice on how you can get a mediator if you think it would be helpful or what you might say to somebody else who you think it might be helpful for. Things to bear in mind while doing that and also panning out right at the end to ask what we can all take from mediation techniques to help us in our everyday lives. We join the conversation when I have just asked Sharon how someone would go about getting mediation, either for themselves or for someone else. They've been thinking, this is great, but how do I get it for me? So let's rejoin. In the mediation world, we have different specialisms. So, for instance, if it was a dispute between parents, maybe who are splitting up, there's a very particular process they'd need to follow. And they could go to the Family Mediation Council to get advice about the support to work through a family mediation In many communities, there may be a local mediation service available, which could be a charity or could be offered through a housing association or through the local authority. So it's probably worth actually just looking up on the Internet local mediation providers as a start point. But also the Civil Mediation Council is the sort of professional body for many mediators and I've had quite a few referrals recently of people who've started to think about going through the courts to maybe make a small claims um, court claim against somebody who hasn't done what they were supposed to do in the contract or, you know, an issue between the landlord and the tenant or bills not being paid, deposits not being refunded, landscape gardening disputes. And when you actually look up the small claims court process, the .gov website actually suggests trying mediation and there's a hyperlink on there that takes you to a list of mediators and you can search them by geography. So that's another route, depending on where you are and how important it is for you to have a local mediator. But a lot of mediators now are providing virtual mediation. So that's a really good way to get access to someone fairly quickly who can help you to think about, right, what steps do I need to go through? And some mediators may actually help by giving you tips about what you could say to the other person. For instance, I had a call yesterday and what, you know, sort of talked through with somebody. They had a dispute with their neighbour about a party wall agreement. And as Stephen said at the very beginning of this, the absolute critical thing with mediation is that the two parties have to agree to take part in it. I think starting off with an observation, we've talked about our, our lovely nonviolent communication model where we start with an observation to the neighbour or to the person you're in dispute with around the fact that the relationship's broken down in some way. So I've noticed that we're not talking to each other anymore when we pass each other on the path because this argument's gone on so long. I feel really uncomfortable with this situation because I'd like to be in a good neighbourly relationship with you. Would you be willing to take part in a mediation with me where we could have somebody neutral helping us to work through what the issues are? Because every time we try and talk about it ourselves, we seem to get stuck in this rut and this repeat argument. So you're sort of requesting politely that the other person would would take part. If they say no, (laughs) which they might, because they might do because they don't even know what mediation is, it's probably worth having a second sentence up your sleeve, which is, well, do you have any ideas about how else we might be able to resolve this? Do you know anyone who might help us to, to have a conversation? and give the other person some choice about what steps they might be prepared to take next, but you're still giving them a signal that actually you're not really taking no for an answer. You're just happy to consider another solution if they have any ideas. I I had exactly, to Sharon, exactly the same down, um, uh, recognised that it's not working, 
that it's really important that it should work, that the relationship requires one to do all one can, uh, to ask them for ideas as to how one can make the conversation better, and then raise the possibility of assistance from someone else. And as Sharon says, that sometimes they will say no. A lot of people still don't really understand what mediation is about. Occasionally, they still think it's meditation. You know, it's a sort of strange, arcane, new age process. Um, and sometimes, uh, in, in a situation like that, I m- might try and encourage both sides to see if they know someone who knows them both, who could encourage them, who could help both move towards towards finding a mediator. And on that point, if you had to describe what a mediation involves to someone else in a nutshell, what would you say? I would say it is a process where two people are supported by a neutral third party, ideally somebody who's qualified and experienced, to have a conversation about the thing they're in dispute about with the aim of finding a solution. Yeah, my community mediation trainer defined uh, community mediation as helping people have difficult conversations. Uh, And we've talked in our podcast about having difficult conversations and transforming difficult conversations. Mediation is the step on whereby you consciously help others who can't, for whatever reason, have those difficult conversations to have them. Thanks. That's really helpful, I'm sure, for lots of people who might be thinking about people they know who might find this useful and all of these practical tips that we're giving are there any limits of mediation that we should be aware of yeah you have to have both sides of the dispute in the room as one thing i always ask is there anyone you think needs to be in the room who's involved in this conflict so it might be that i'm having a conversation with with one of the parties and they're a couple or they've got a business partner or something else and they're not in the room And, you know, that rings alarm bells to me. And I'm like, well, do they need to be in the room in order to make that decision? So I would say that's, so there's there's a limiting factor there. So if you can only get one side of the party, that makes it difficult to do a mediation. Doesn't mean it's hopeless. We offer a, a thing called conflict coaching, which is basically to help an individual explore options that they have that they can do within their power or within their gift. So you might not be able to do mediation, but they can still have assistance to help them think through the conflict and make their life better for themselves. But the definition I used is to intervene for the purpose of agreement or the purpose of reconciliation. So you ask what is going to be needed to get reconciliation? What is going to be needed to get an agreement? And realistically, how is that agreement going to last on the ground? Who has to agree in order for that to work in practice. Sometimes the people who want the mediation are peripheral to the real dispute, in which event, as Phil says, you've got to get the key players, the voices, those whose agreement will be needed to make this work. And in initial planning of a mediation, there's a process, to some extent, of thinking clearly about who needs to participate in it by reference to the agreement that you want to see in place at the end and how that's going to be achieved. I can see that same principle operating in lots of things which we wouldn't necessarily call conflicts, like at work, actually, if you want to move change through an organisation, you need to think about all the players that are going to be needed in order to carry out that change. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that happens in workplace mediations and one of the, you could say it's a limit, but it's also an empowering thing is that sometimes two individuals who are in conflict at work might actually agree that it would be really helpful if their line manager gave them some training or they were supported in some way by the organisation. And confidentiality is one of the key principles of mediation. So you sign a confidentiality agreement before you start. And as a mediator, you commit that you won't share the information with anyone else. Um, And in a workplace mediation, if those two parties agree to something, but they're going to need someone else's help, you have to make sure you build that into the process, because otherwise you'd be contradicting the, the commitment to confidentiality. So, so I've had tricky ones before where one person's quite happy for it to be shared with other people in the organisation to get the help, and the other one's going, "No, I just, I'm not, I'm not prepared to, I'm not prepared to share." So that that can be tricky. You can you can usually work through it, but it can be can be a limitation. And on that point, Sharon, thinking about multiple groups, what happens when there are large groups involved? Have you got any comments on that? It, it wouldn't be a traditional mediation in that sense. I have had situations where something starts off as labelled as a mediation between two people in a team, and then it's turned out that actually there are some other broken relationships. <laughs> and and sometimes I'll facilitate a team session where we talk about, for example, trust. What would it need for this team to, st- to have stronger trust and to have better communication? And so, so it becomes a different kind of intervention. Usually in a workplace context, a mediation would be between two individuals. And if it goes beyond that, it's a different intervention. So more of facilitation of the whole team to have a a difficult discussion again. Another massive limit is safe uh, or unsafe team. And we've already said, or I think Sharon Rice at the outset talked about safe space. I qualified it slightly safe enough space. Uh, And there is always an element of risk because you never know what's going to happen when people meet particularly if they're in a conflict. And so you're always balancing, on the one hand, the prospect of something amazing happening, which is the 70-80% probability, and the risk of something disastrous taking place. That's the, the downside. And you can't ever totally guarantee that it won't be really bad. And there is always, therefore, that balance to look at. So in practical terms, where there is a power imbalance between the two individuals. You've got to be careful because mediation, particularly if done by an inexperienced mediator, can can end up exacerbating that power imbalance. If issues of abuse or violence are in play, leave aside one's obligations legally uh, to report or not to be involved where that would override confidentiality. Again, you have to be careful about weighing that balance. And there is therefore risk to the mediator. That's the mediator's job to make sure whether they are, are competent at being involved, which is why in the community field, we almost always have two people mediating, not one. The commercial, which is more sort of cerebral and conceptual, usually it's one mediator. But where it's interpersonal, in most difficult interpersonal mediations, family mediations, community mediations, often workplace mediations, certainly victim offender mediations, where you are bringing victims of crime to meet the offenders, you have two mediators there to try and look at that risk factor. Uh, and and there, there are, it's difficult to put your finger on it, but if those who are listening are concerned about it, do take it seriously. 
and therefore if you're looking at a mediator talk through with the mediator the possible concerns you may have about being in the same room over that person and enable the mediator to guide you as to what can or cannot safely be done i would add um one other limitation um it's not always a limitation but is um it has to be a voluntary process they have to want mm -hmm. to be in the room and if for any reason they feel like they're coerced or forced, so there might be another power dynamic there, you know, if there's someone else forcing them to be in the room, then that that can often derail a mediation. It doesn't mean there isn't value in it, but it can quite often derail it. Um, and I've certainly had that in a community mediation context when there might be, I guess, the threat of eviction from a house yeah. or something like that, from, from a housing association or from the council. Um, and so that person feels like they have to go through with mediation, otherwise they'll get evicted. Or if they are seen to be the ones who stop the mediation, then that will somehow be a black mark against them. Um, and so then that picks up on Sharon's point about confidentiality and being very protective over what happens within the mediation. But yeah, that's something that I spent quite a lot of time exploring with, with clients and, and with, with people uh, in, in mediation to trying to make sure that it really is a truly voluntary process. Yeah, that happens in workplace mediations too, because in a, in a civil and commercial mediation, it won, the, the parties split the fee between them. So there's a kind of, you know, there's a balance there. But in a workplace mediation, the employer is paying and therefore they are the mediator's client and paymaster, uh, which means that sometimes employees who are in dispute will perceive that the mediator is kind of, part of the organizational structure to make them take part in mediation. And one of the things I have a number of times had to say to HR people who are appointing me is one of the first things I'm going to say to these employees is this is a voluntary process. And if they say to me, it's not voluntary, they told me I have to do it. I am going to exercise my protocol as a mediator and say, if this is not voluntary, then I can't proceed as a mediator. Um, so, and that's actually really powerful. So, and I say it to the individuals and they sit there and they say, what, so you're saying I could walk out now? And I say, absolutely. And they won't even know which of you didn't want to go ahead with it because that's where the confidentiality comes in. And then they kind of relax and go, yeah, all right, then I'll try it. <laughs> but they're choosing. It's really important that they're choosing. That is so interesting, Sharon, in terms of everything we've talked about on these podcasts about the difference between coercion and invitation yeah. and giving people respect and choice rather than aggressively or passively trying to manipulate them into particular behaviours that we might want. Just listening, Sarah, as you said that, the part of your job as a mediator is to be vulnerable and humble. We've talked about that before in terms of that, but you don't have the answers. And just listening to what Sharon was saying about how she was putting myself in the shoes of the employee or employees who she was notionally talking to in that illustration she gave, I felt listening to her, but I sort of warmed to her because she was empowering me. She was dignifying me. She was giving me the choice. And as a mediator, she's saying, look, I'm not here to deliver something. I can't fix this. I'm here in one sense for you, but not just for you. I'm also here for her, for him, for the other party. And that sort of even handedness and the humility that comes with saying, look, you know, I, I, we're in this together. I have no idea what's going to happen. Let's just sort of see what happens. 
more often than not, even if that initially has not been complete consent to the process. I've had it quite often. Parties say, I'm only here because the judge forced the solicitors to say yes. I'm really ticking a box. That's what I'm doing. Sometimes it'll candidly say that. Normally, it gives one an opportunity to explain how the process is theirs, not mine. They are bigger than the problem. And when encouraged in that way, and it often requires that third party, the intervener's encouragement, they say, do you know what? Maybe we can live up to the hope that mm. that person is notionally ascribing to us. Let's see if we can make it. Often they do. That's such a lovely thought to end on. But I wondered, as we could talk probably all night about this, <laughs> if you have any favourite stories that you'd like to share. I've got one story which I think might have been one of my very first mediations. It was two neighbours living above and below each other. It was all about noise. It was pretty heated. But what was beautiful is bringing them together into a... And I, I remember we met with each party beforehand. We listened to their story. And both me and the co-mediator were like, I do not know what's going on here. They both had different stories. I think there was marbles dropping on the floor from one party downstairs that's what it sounded like upstairs we're wearing slippers and being really really careful and, and all this kind of stuff so you're just like I don't know I don't know what's going to happen brought them together and in that moment there was some quite vulnerable stuff shared when they were brought together the downstairs had a, a child who had learning disabilities and, and, and used to get quite aggravated and that was causing part of the noise but the upstairs didn't know that and as soon as that was shared it was like a a light bulb came on but what was really funny is they realized that actually that the housing officer that had been speaking to both of them had actually just been telling each party what they wanted to hear not what was reality. So it'd been siding with each one and saying, oh yeah, they're, they're terrible upstairs. They do all of these kind of things. And then it had done the same thing to the upstairs. And then, so what was hilarious was that they kind of suddenly realized that actually they didn't need to be in conflict with each other, that perhaps they needed to address this other person who maybe was stirring the pot a bit. That always just makes me smile. Uh, best thoughts. I mean, uh, the doesn't always happen, occasionally happens. It's a quotation, uh, and you just occasionally see it happen. The American poet Longfellow, who said, if we could read the secret histories of our enemies, we would discover pain and suffering enough to disarm all hostilities. If we read the secret histories of our enemies, we would discover pain and suffering enough to disarm all hostilities. And the occasional stories in mediation, when someone is vulnerable enough to uh, share what's actually happened well like Phil was saying actually just then there is a response on the other side to say well in that case compassion actually is doable because you have shared vulnerability in need I always love the moment when as a mediator I feel really out of my depth and I don't know what's going on but then at that <laughs> very moment something changes yeah. someone says something someone's vulnerable someone says I'm sorry or actually starts to listen and it all changes and it's like that i mean i don't see it coming so they don't see it coming in some ways and that's a beautiful moment and you're I, yeah i'm always just blown away by how that can completely turn what is quite a toxic environment into a place where they feel like they can move forward
What's struck me listening to all of you is how countercultural this process is because it requires us to leave our egos outside of the room, to accept that we don't know where things are going, to pause to listen before we speak, um, and to kind of put down our weapons. And Stephen, you mentioned right at the beginning about the polarisation that I think a lot of people have been talking about, but we don't necessarily know what to do about it. And I guess one final parting shot (laughs) I want to pick your reins on is what do you think all of our listeners can take from this about how we engage with each other publicly in public life? I've been rehearsing um, compassionate interpretations about why other people are not following the rules (laughs) Uh, in various public contexts, whether it's on public transport, not wearing masks or behaving in ways that I would perceive as being disrespectful or sort of antisocial. And I've, I've, I've started practicing making up stories <laughs> of reasons why they're behaving the way they are. And it really helped me to not be angry and frustrated and judgmental. I, I, I think it's very easy for us to slip into our own polarized views and our own strong opinions that we hold on to and there's a lot of social media we're we're in either friendship bubbles or family bubbles or social media bubbles that reinforce our existing views and wherever that bubble is if we don't allow ourselves to imagine that someone else is existing in a different bubble that polarization is going to continue and as as people who are passionate about mediation and connection and peacemaking we have to try really hard to imagine other people's reality in in different bubbles to help create those connections. Can I answer your question, Sarah, by the word kindness? And looking back over six months, it's a word that is featured regularly at all levels, press, news, comments. And kindness, it strikes me, means it's, it's sort of what we've been talking about. It's when someone says, look, I've got some skills, but I'm just going to hang around in the middle of this and see whether me being there can help. It's kindness. It's being prepared to engage with other people, assuming the best rather than the worst, trying to say, I'm not here to fix. I don't have a solution. I need actually to move towards you. I need to say something. I need to be kind. I need to engage and see what happens. And I think perhaps, just perhaps, our experience of the better aspects of lockdown in the last six months has been the rediscovery of this concept of kindness. And I think all that we're talking about, all I'm at least on my heart about this whole mediation process is trying as the mediator to be kind uh, and not to fix. And to say, let's just hang here with you and see what maybe we can accomplish together. I mean, I agree with everything that's been said. But also be curious would be the other thing I would throw out. And I know we've talked about it before in the kind of one-on-one thing, but asking, you know, back to the polarizing point that Sharon was making, instead of asking how could someone believe that, maybe asking why might they believe something or why they might have that view and being a little bit curious. And I think that's something I've learned as a mediator when you initially hear a story from one party, then you hear a story from another party, which 
feasibly they both can't be true but they might be true for those people and their perspectives and so to be curious as a mediator you kind of just have to go i have to dispel all trying to work out facts and judgment and all that kind of stuff and just be present and be curious as to where this where this thing might go um, and so to apply that to life and say actually i'm going to be really curious about why someone is saying something why they're acting the way they are and what might be behind that we talked about it what might be beneath the surface that's driving all of that behavior so yeah curiosity would be the thing i'll throw in thank you so much everyone for those really powerful thoughts it's been a pleasure to hear your personal passion for mediation thank you so much Thanks for joining our mediation special. We're really keen to help any of our listeners out with getting a mediator. So if you have any questions, please do feel free to email unlockingconflict at crux.org.uk with your question and we can signpost you to people who can help. And that extends to to anyone you know, your uncles, your sisters, your friends, your work colleagues. It's unlockingconflict at crux.org.uk and that link is also in the session notes for this episode. This has been Unlocking Conflict. Thanks for listening.